What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org slash economist. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Today, though, we're taking a step away from the news to take a look at some offbeat global stories. This year has done much to highlight the notion of isolation, but it can mean more than just crimped social and familial ties. Our correspondent gets to know a remote French village, a place out of time where isolation also brings a rare kind of solace. And even if you haven't been to the Sistine Chapel, you've never seen it like this. We crack the spines of a lush three-volume set of books that examines every inch of Michelangelo's masterpiece from up close. Very close. First up, though. In Mexico, the pandemic has hit hard. A government analysis found almost 200,000 excess deaths from March to the end of September. Earlier this year, the country's COVID-19 czar pointed his finger at an unlikely culprit. Hugo lopez Gatay called fizzy drinks a bottled poison. Three quarters of Mexicans are overweight, a condition that can increase the severity of COVID-19. But Mr. lopez Gatay didn't name the drink in question. He didn't really have to. Every country has its own national drink. The French drink wine. The Germans love their beer. The Italians have their coffee. In Mexico, the national drink is Coca-Cola. Richard Enzor is The Economist's Mexico City bureau chief. The last time Coca-Cola released global consumption statistics broken down by country, Mexico was at the top of the list by quite some distance. They were drinking 50% more than the second place country on that list. And that gives you an insight into just how central Coca-Cola is to everyday life for so many Mexicans. And what does that look like on the ground? So when you spend a bit of time in Mexico, you can see this in a lot of really strange ways. Just driving down the road, you can see so many families that sell Coca-Cola and nothing more from the side of the road. And one of the most famous examples of the popularity of Coca-Cola in this country is the town of San Juan Chamula. If you just walk through the town and its streets, you could be forgiven for thinking that somebody passed a law requiring everyone to have a bottle of Coke in their hand and to constantly be drinking four or five of them every day. If you walk into the church, you will see an incredible example of syncretism that draws tourists from all around the world, where the Coca-Cola bottle has been incorporated into indigenous religious rituals, where they pour the Coca-Cola across a row of candles to try and vanquish the bad spirits. It's really something incredible. But also just walking into any shop, walking past construction sites, you will see that in many ways, the consumption of Coca-Cola fuels the work done in this country. And so is it just that it's it's neighboring America and there's just been really good marketing of Coke there that, that that's driven this consumption? 
So the first Coke bottles in this country popped in the 1920s. But unlike other places in Panama, Cuba, Canada, where it was designed to, to sell to Americans in the diaspora, Mexican businessmen in the north on the border, they saw Coca-Cola in the American magazines. And they actually requested and demanded and threatened Coca-Cola in order for them to, to bring it to the country. It was very much done at the request of the Mexican business class here. And the way that manifested is you've got these two very powerful bottlers and they've sort of split the country. Coca-Cola gives them the syrup and they, they handle the rest. It's a supply chain that directly employs 100,000 people and employs about a million more indirect. And so Coca-Cola, they claim to represent 1.4% of GDP right here for Mexico. And this supply chain has really left a legacy in the country. The first president of Mexico's democratic era, which began in 2000, was Vicente Fox. And Mr. Fox was, in the 1960s and 70s, a president of Coca-Cola Mexico. He cut his teeth driving trucks around Mexico, delivering Coca-Cola to ordinary Mexicans. And he said that that kind of political training, getting to know Mexicans on Coca-Cola's supply route, it was like being a presidential candidate in Iowa and New Hampshire, going from village to village. And so basically the love for, for this stuff has, has only grown over all of those years? The story in Mexico is pretty similar to the story in a lot of places. You know, for decades, Mexicans were told that sugar and caffeine and these chemicals in Coca-Cola were a source of strength. They were fuel. They would give you the energy to get through the day. And it wasn't until the 1960s and 70s where more awareness became quite widespread about the damage that sugar in large amounts can do. And it was only when Coca-Cola started to be viewed as dangerous or hazardous to the health, that it started to be viewed as foreign rather than Mexican. And that showed up in the popular culture around this time with Coca-Cola as a symbol of cultural imperialism. These days, you can still find opponents of Coca-Colonization, as they like to call it. But you also see a strong lobby against Coca-Cola on health grounds. And that manifests in all sorts of calls to regulate Coca-Cola to make people drink less of it, and ultimately to knock it off its throne as Mexico's national drink. In 2013, the Mexican Congress approved a tax on all fizzy drinks, of course, including Coca-Cola, and that seems to have slowed the growth in consumption of these drinks across Mexico. But that's already some, some years ago now. Why, why is Coke back in the news now? Well, for two reasons, Jason. The first is that for the first time in a long time, we have a, a left-leaning government that is a little bit more active on these issues of regulations to improve health and the like. And that was given an extra kick by the context of a pandemic that is killing so many Mexicans. Despite it being a very young country, it's such an unhealthy one. There are very high rates of diabetes, obesity, and high blood pressure. So this is manifested in a whole series of reforms. In October, the government began applying big black sort of labels on, on unhealthy foods, including Coca-Cola, telling you that it has too many calories, too much sugar, that it's not going to be good for you or your children. They've also been in various states passing a law that says that the sale of junk food to minors is no longer allowed. So it's a really hard time to be a soft drink in Mexico right now. So do you think all of that threatens the uh, Coke in particular, the, the a love affair that's been going on for all of this time? Well, Coca-Cola knows how to be a good citizen. It knows how to play the game of dealing with governments that aren't always its biggest fans. So in 2018, Coca-Cola voluntarily 
cut a third of the sugar content of its recipe for Mexican Coca-Cola. And just last month, the global head of Coca-Cola, James Quincy, visited Mexico for a meeting with the president where they promised all kinds of things to be better citizens. When they make their juices, they're going to use apples from Chihuahua in Mexico rather than importing them from Chile. They are going to be helping some of these small Coke sellers who are still on the side of the road but aren't selling as much Coke during the pandemic now as they normally would be. They want to try and offer some kinds of programs of support. So you do see that idea that as we move into more health-conscious times, the glamour of Coca-Cola can fade a little. It's determined to retain that title as Mexico's national drink. Richard, thanks very much for joining us. Jason, thank you. For plenty more analysis like this from our international network of correspondents, pick up a subscription to The Economist. Get a great introductory offer and possible last-minute Christmas gift at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. With the highest number of young STEM graduates per capita in the EU, Ireland has the people and skills your company needs to succeed here. IDA Ireland, the National Investment Development Agency, can help you find and nurture the people you need to internationalize and thrive. Our talent is just one of the extraordinary benefits Ireland has to offer. Learn more at idaireland.com. Invest in extraordinary. Here's the truth about AI. AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow puts AI to work for people across your business, removing friction and frustration for your employees, supercharging productivity for your developers, providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier, all built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com AI for people. This year, lockdowns taught the world about isolation. But before the pandemic, not everyone had been accustomed to the busy life. Over the course of the summer, our Paris bureau chief, Sophie Petter, made regular visits to a remote French village to explore what solitude means. She found lessons for everyone who struggled with connection during this fractured year. Benivé Hollande is a commune in southeastern France. It lies in the folds of mountains between the foothills of the Alps and the Mediterranean hinterland. When you arrive in the village, you come up a road that leads to nowhere else. It winds up the valley along the course of the very shallow Aigamas River between craggy limestone outcrops and emerald green forest. And you arrive in this village of just 66 people. When I was there in the summer, the cicadas are insistent, even in the morning, and the warm air is infused with the scent of wild rosemary. Benivet boasts no cafe, no shop, no post office, not even a boulangerie, and nobody passes through it, not by chance and certainly not by design. when you arrive from the city, you think of places like Benivet as either places of community and tradition and tranquility, or places that are really isolated from the modern world, cut off and in some sense of decline. But 
What I found after visiting Benivea, and I went there six times over the course of three months this summer, is that neither of those two views really tells the full story. The first resident of Benivea I met was Daniel Charas, who is the mayor. He owns an apricot farm in the valley, and their lives, the Shiraz family, their lives really are entwined with this village and the valley for generations and over centuries. Daniel Shiraz is retired now, but his son Florian, who's 33 years old, has taken over the farm. And one morning I went up and I found them under this beautiful blue sky, picking apricots. And every ripe apricot has to be plucked by hand. Florian showed me how to do this. You just twist the apricot very gently. And he told me to listen to the rustle of the sound it made. And at that point, when it just made the right noise, he plucked it. He knew it was ripe and he put it into the bucket. It's a very unpredictable life for them up there in this valley. They have to battle pests. Poor harvests are quite common. When I went back to see Florian in August, he told me that this year had been a disaster. He had lost 85% of the apricot harvest because of a frost earlier this year. But he still told me that he just can't imagine any other life. But it's certainly not an existence for everybody, I'd say. Benivé, like a lot of rural France over the past century, has lost its population. The young pack up and leave and go to the city. And if you look at the census records uh, back in 1911, the population of Benivé was twice what it is today. But having said that, uh, some young people do want to live there. And I met a wonderful young couple in their 20s, Ludo and Alexia. Alexia's from the city, actually, she's from Nantes, but she and Ludo decided to make their lives in the village where Ludo actually grew up. And I asked them if they could imagine living anywhere else. And Alexia just laughed and she said that she persuaded Ludo to look at a couple of other places down the valley, but that he said he just couldn't imagine living even in the next village, just further down the valley. And Ludo explained that it's about the landscape. He needs to be able to wake up in the morning and see the same mountains. I think many people might find this a very lonely place to live. And I asked Danielle's wife, Simone, who's Florian's mother, whether the word solitude speaks to her. Un peu plus, oui. Dans quel sens? Dans le sens où... And she said it did a bit in the sense that during the fruit harvest, they're all up there on their own land and they're apart from each other. They're, they're picking the fruit and therefore they are doing solitary work. And then a neighbour of hers, Edith, stopped by and she said she wouldn't use the word solitude. She said she felt it was really more about zenitude. She said that actually there's no one in the village they don't talk to. You know, neighbours drop in on each other all the time. The town hall has a committee just dedicated to holding fête or village parties. And Florian was very much of the same opinion. He said that he thinks there's less solitude in the country because 
when he's in the city, people just pass by each other and they don't talk. Whereas in the village, they always say hello to each other. And Simone told me people talk about where they live as being un pays perdu, meaning a sort of forgotten land. Vous habitez un pays perdu? Perdu, oui, mais pas tant que ça. And as she said to me, well, forgotten by who? Before I went to Benivet for the first time, I think I had only the vaguest idea of what I might be reporting about. In the end, what I wrote was really about solitude. And I think the reason for that is we had all lived through lockdown this year and it seemed interesting to look at the remote lifestyle of people who live in places like that through the lens of the pandemic. In the city, a lot of us found lockdown quite a traumatic experience. But the interesting thing about a place like Venivay is that a lot of the people I spoke to said that really, in terms of daily life, things didn't change very much. And I suppose the pandemic makes you realize that places like Benivay are not quite as lonely or isolated as you imagine until you get there. They clearly are places that bear the scars of ache and of disappointment and, and loss over the centuries. But they're also places of belonging. They're places of incredible serenity and places of really tough but resilient survival. In 1509, a stressed Michelangelo wrote to a friend that painting the Sistine Chapel ceiling was torture. He complained that his stomach was squashed under his chin, that his spine was all knotted from folding himself over. Half a millennium on, he might as well be describing the experience of visiting his famous frescoes. Tourists, before the pandemic anyway, were crammed in and shuffled through, spending less than half an hour gawking at this pinnacle of Renaissance art. But now the Vatican has created a special opportunity for art lovers of considerable means to commune with the frescoes from the comfort of home. So the Vatican, together with a publisher in Italy and a publisher in New York, is bringing the Sistine Chapel into people's living rooms by publishing a three-volume set that documents every painted inch of the ceiling and the frescoes on the walls. Emily Bobro writes about culture for The Economist. But the volumes come with a catch. They cost $22,000. $22,000 for some books. I mean, that's a lot. Yes, it's it's quite a lot, especially since a ticket to see them in real life costs around $20. But it seems they haven't overestimated demand. The thousand volumes that are in Italian have already sold out. So have you managed to get your hands on one or, or all three? Because I'm a, an industrious reporter and I think it's very important to do the research, um, I managed to get a hold of the set. They were shepherded to our house in deep in Brooklyn. The publisher in New York uh, saw my peanut butter encrusted toddler and I think winced a little. Each volume weighs uh, 11 kilograms or around 25 pounds. Together in their protective case, it was the you know weight of a 
small human. And I will say, as I was paging through these books, I'd never been so aware of the oil and the possible schmutz on my hands. What is it about these that makes them worth, for many people, $22,000? You know, buyers will decide whether or not they are indeed worth the $22,000, but they are exquisite. For over two months, um, photographers were perched on 33-foot-tall scaffoldings, uh, documenting every single square inch of this room uh, with these incredible high-resolution photos. You see every daub of paint, every hairline crack and plaster. It's, it's, it's really quite amazing. The Vatican has only allowed uh, 1,999 copies to be made uh, in all languages. And no one seems to know why they've capped the number uh, allowed at 1,999. It it seems uh, true to form that the Vatican would be both mysterious and rigid about this. I recall an experience wandering around the Sistine Chapel myself, kind of crammed in with a bunch of other gawping tourists, um, and it is a, a striking experience. I'm just wondering how much you think a book can replicate that. So nothing can really uh, replicate the experience of seeing these frescoes in person. They are meant to um, reproduce the distance of, of Michelangelo when he was painting them, which is remarkable. But you don't really get a sense of how all of these images fit together. The, the publisher in New York, Nicholas Calloway, uh, anticipates that, you know, depending on demand, there may be other editions, interactive, smaller print-based, um, at more affordable prices. So are you going to have to give these things back? And, and if so, are you going to be asking for a set for Christmas? Oh, yeah. This was absolutely alone. And these books don't make clear stocking stuffers for most people, or in our case, a Hanukkah gift. But, uh, you know, I think for that special person in your life, if, if, if you think they're worth the $22,000 books, um, go right ahead. It's, it's, it's quite a gift. Emily, thanks very much for your time. Thanks so much, Jason. It was great. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And see you back here tomorrow. next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org economist.